really wanted to understand what were the factors that helped them thrive when everyone else, or statistically speaking, the majority of a population were struggling. When we're in a negative frame of mind, it does alert the nervous system to go into, it doesn't have to be extreme, but it does alert us to go into some level of fight or flight or freeze. Gosh, connection, you know, to me is, is Over the course of my life and career, I've discovered the power of consciously investing in mindset and personal development. It has been a true game changer for me in my personal and professional life. And I'm extremely excited that you decided to join us today to take one step forward in your own life. Most of my breakthroughs have come from one-on-one -on -one conversations. We created this show to bring you those unfiltered conversations each and every week. Hello and welcome back to the Connected Mindset Live. I'm your host, Greg Tomchik. Each and every week, we bring you the stories and strategies to help you better connect to the world around you. As many of you know, about seven years ago, I was a victim of a cyber attack. I started a company called Valor Cybersecurity, which many of you are familiar with, to bring business owners the tools that I wish I had. One of those tools we recently released is a free cyber threat assessment that you can fill out. You can get an idea of where you stand from a cybersecurity perspective. And that'll allow you to make more strategic decisions around should you invest in cybersecurity or should you not? And uh, looking forward to um, you participating in that assessment. I will drop the link in the chat here. And without further ado, we have Miss Diane Malaspina um, from Virginia Beach, which is extremely exciting and hopefully bring her on the show in the future in person. Um, really looking forward to this discussion. Most of you know, I like to start this show by understanding who the person in front of us is today. Um, and in order to understand that individual, you have to understand where people come from and kind of what set them on fire to you know, push through the journey that they're going through and bringing to the world. Um, so Diane, thank you so much for joining us. And if we can start the conversation by understanding you know, who the younger Diane was and how it has shaped the Diane that's in front of us today. Hi, Greg. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, so I did grow up in a family and a climate where there were very high expectations, a lot of emphasis on striving and achieving and stacking up accolades and um, building what would look like from the outside as like, quote unquote, an impressive life, right? So I started off um, after high school, I started off with a strong nudge toward studying business. And one thing about me, as much as I was really on a track of high achievement and kind of pushing myself um, in terms of academics, was that I was starting to realize what things motivated me and what things did not motivate me. And at the time, um, as an 18-year-old in college, I just didn't feel connected to studying business. It didn't feel like a fit. 
And while I could put my effort in and I could get good grades, um, it was the first time in my life that I really recognized that how much effort I put into something and how well I do at it has a deep influence on being connected to my purpose. And so going through sort of that self-searching phase of life that a lot of us go through in our late teens and early 20s, um, I ended up finding the field of psychology and jumped into studying psychology as an undergrad, um, continued my graduate studies both in education and psychology, and eventually went on to get a PhD. And um, working as a psychologist, what I realized was that um, our purpose and, and what we wanna do and what we don't wanna do, we check in kind of with our internal compass really impacts our motivation and our overall energy. And so when I made that switch to studying psychology, it was the first time I felt that connection to purpose and how that fueled me to pursue what I wanted to create and ways I wanted to help others. And interestingly, I eventually became an entrepreneur. So business was something that I was interested in. But at the time, um, I needed to like take the journey toward understanding my real passion, which is understanding the mind and the nervous system and how people can step into them their best selves. So, so that's really how kind of being a high achiever led me down the path of really getting curious and connecting to ways that I could contribute what I'm passionate about in some meaningful way in the world. Yeah, I love that. What a, what a journey, what an experience to it's kind of brought back full circle because you ended up getting into business and, but you had to find the topic that set you on fire to be able to, you know, business is really that, that simple. It's, you know, finding that thing that makes you special and that you want to put out into the world. And then the business part is just wrapping that up into, you know, legal paperwork and a, a formal offering. And um, I think it's a, incredible how you went down you know, that journey to, you know, learn and make connections between the mind, psychology, and then some of the, you know, physical practices that you put out into the world today. Um, you know, people need more of that, those kind of combinations and um, meeting points of different topics that are commonly, you know, in silos, which I think is something you're breaking down um, each and every day with the way you approach what you're doing. Um, was there anything in that journey that made you curious of psychology specifically obviously the study of it and you know we're all going through this journey but was there anything specifically that said i want to do psychology because of this yeah i mean i think there was a few different areas um one i i really like a systematic method so the research side of behavioral science was really appealing to me it made sense to me to have a method for understanding things, understanding factors that contribute to things. Um, my training is both in developmental psychology and educational psychology. And so when we think of developmental psychology, it's really about the different ways that we move through the lifespan and the different transitions we rub up against and the different cultural influences that make each and every one of us unique, but at the same time, what's the shared human experience as we move across life over time. And I just, I just really think of myself as a student of life. And so that to me, when I was studying, it wasn't a very like popular topic. In fact, you know, my family was like, what kind of job are you going to get with that? <laughs> you know, 
it, it didn't seem to have like a direct through line. Um, so early in my career, I became a college professor and was was in more of the research and, and how to apply that in different settings. But um, I think it was the curiosity paired of like human behavior and that paired with having this methodology based on research that made a lot of sense to me. And then what I ended up finding in graduate school, there were two influential areas that really now make me who I am as a practitioner. The first was the field of resilience as a research and practitioner invention lens. And so this was in the 90s. And back then, resilience as like a study in the field of psychology was very, very new um, as operationally defined in the field. And so um, it was a, it's, it's a strength-based approach. It's understanding for those who, at the time, we looked a lot at adversity and, and people who thrived in the face of adversity. We really wanted to understand what were the factors that helped them thrive when everyone else, or statistically speaking, the majority of a population were struggling. And so we look started with like big events, like natural disasters, you know, or things where people in like very high risk categories. But then the field started just moving into things that many of us experience, like life transitions or school transitions or things like that, where many of us experience those things, but we still see a drop in performance. And then there were those pockets of people who don't demonstrate a drop in performance. And then instead of spending all of our energy on the ones who seem to be struggling, really understanding the factors of the ones who weren't struggling and might even be thriving, and then seeing if we could use what we're learning from that information and applying it to the people who are struggling and bringing out more resiliency overall in terms of, of you know, groups of people. And so that was the lens instead of looking at mental illness, which is what psychology was looking at when I was in undergrad. And when I got to grad school, it was this new and exciting field of, well, let's understand health and well-being and resiliency and, and like these factors that help us to thrive and flourish in life. And simultaneously, I found yoga and mindfulness practices. And so that was the this ancient system which acknowledged that human existence is suffering, right? Mm -hmm. But then that there are these methods and these practices that can liberate us from this sense of suffering and help us to tap into the wholeness of the experience of human life. So those two things seemed like the same thing to me. One was in the School of Psychology and one was in this Eastern philosophy system that included movement and breath and mental focus. And for a long time, I was like practicing my psychology work in one box and you know working as a college professor and a researcher and a writer and giving talks and you know working with interventions. And then I had another box where I was like, cultivating my yoga practice, becoming um, a yoga teacher and skilled at these practices and sharing them with others. And I always knew they were like so much the same. And then, you know, the world of research started studying these more mindfulness-based practices and the impact they were having on people's overall health and well-being. And then my worlds merged in a way where I felt like I could bring that into the world from a level of expertise. And so it's been like, you know, 10, 12 years, um, a lot of the large universities like Duke University, Harvard University started putting out research on meditation and the effects of 
breathing techniques and things like that. And so um, I've been very lucky to also be called upon to write about these things and teach about these things and talk about these things. And along the way, I, I left university life. I actually went into business, owned a yoga studio, you know, kind of have kind of dabbled into both worlds. But now I'm a coach and psychologist and where I just integrate all of the work. And sometimes it's in a yoga setting and oftentimes it's one-on-one -on -one or in organizations. Excellent. Wow. Yeah. It's what an exciting time to be in a field that I think really took off. sounds like around the time or kind of morphed into something that was more based off being proactive as opposed to treating illness once it's an illness. And one of the things that's always fascinated me, and you, you mentioned it, is recognizing that life is a lot of struggle um, or suffering and how important it is to make that recognition, but then not make that your whole story that you're telling yourself all the time. Um, how critical do you think it is to recognize their suffering, but still have that you know, positive story that you're telling yourself as you navigate you know, different situations? Yeah, I mean, I think that like the acceptance of of there's going to be these waves that we go through. There's going to be, you know, it's kind of like we're riding a roller coaster life in some respects. You know, sometimes we're 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 moving upwards, we're getting to some peak experiences, and other times it feels like we're moving, you know, down the track and toward the valley. And um, I think that culturally and and, and media wise we get a lot of what a lot of people talk about is like something like toxic positivity, right? Mm -hmm. or, or sort of bypassing of the human experience where like things feel like they, and I'm putting air quotes up, like should be a certain way and I should be happy all the time. And, you know, I should have this life that looks this certain way. And like I mentioned before, that might've been part of my own path at being the way I was brought up um in like achieving and doing and you know once i hit this milestone then i'll have everything and then i'll be happy but the reality is is that um much of life is actually quite neutral and and much of life is is also you know there are those down ticks and then there's those up ticks but much of it is neither absolutely wonderful and neither absolutely awful and the key to it is is being able to step back from the images that we see and the ideas that we hear about how how it should be or the you know the end of the movie always end up with a happy ending and realizing that if we can accept that there will be struggle we start to cultivate the tools to navigate it better because it's really the resistance to the struggle that starts to get us in deeper trouble in terms of our own mental and physical health mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that because it, it's very relevant to my past as a baseball player. The, the the athletes that tried to avoid, you know, striking out, or they were like, "Oh, you know, I, I can't throw a bad pitch." Like they would they would simmer on the the negatives, and most of the time, that's what would happen. And um, from a psychology standpoint, that's interesting to me. Is you know, how does that function in the body? And I'm interested in kind of diving a little bit into the nervous system, but and um, but as far as the mind goes, you know, what does the research say about people that are constantly telling themselves that kind of, you know, I, I can't or I don't want to do this? And does that make it manifest mm -hmm. in the environment around them? Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. 
I don't love the term manifest because it's yeah. a little less sciencey, but but mm -hmm. it is it, it, you know it kind of conveys it. But really, what happens is is this this cycle of our beliefs influence what actions we take or don't take, which then influences the reality we experience. Okay, and so from that level. Um, if my belief is I don't, I want, I can't, right? That creates a sense of being stuck in that negative frame of mind. When we're in a negative frame of mind, it does alert the nervous system to go into, it doesn't have to be extreme, but it doesn't alert us to go into some level of fight or flight or freeze, okay? So the response is that, I need to use resources to try to get to something is out of balance. So I need to execute resources to find balance. Okay. Negative states ultimately are designed to protect us. But when the negative states are coming from a frame of mind, they can get in our way. And they we start executing the parts of the brain, the parts of the body that put us in a mode, like I said, of either fighting what's in front of us, escaping from what's in front of us, or being completely frozen and stuck. So like I said, beliefs determine actions which determine reality. So if I'm in that more negative frame of mind, the actions that I take from there are either to escape it, to resist it, or to be stuck in it. Mm -hmm. And then my reality is just that, right? But if we can come into more of a state of mind that includes growth or optimism, um, what we find is that it's called um, broaden and build. And so when we get into positive states of mind, we start to get out of that preservation mode of fight or flight or freeze. And we get into an expansive mode where we actually use our more human parts of our brain related to creativity and insight and problem solving. And so if we see something as like a temporary setback or an opportunity opportunity to learn from feedback or, you know, like maybe in, in a sport, like a coach giving feedback or training on a new skill or strengthening a new, you know, neural pathway of, of movement or muscle engagement that when we have that, we broaden and build our repertoire, which leads to different actions, which usually lead to, like I said, creativity, um, taking different steps to move in a new direction. And then our reality becomes more of what it is that we desire. So it's not like I just, um, it just pops in front of me because I have a positive thought. It's that those more, um, action oriented ways of thinking, those broadened perspectives give us the idea of what action we need to take, we take that action because we're coming from a mood or a state of mind that has energy that isn't feeling um, like it needs to stop or run away or be frozen and stuck. And that's those steps that we take help us achieve the outside goal that we're seeking. Mm -hmm. And so it really is much of a, of a nervous system thing um, yeah. that we want to tune into. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love how you mentioned the fight, flight, or freeze. I actually haven't heard that before. It's and it's this battle between you know do you do you do you fight it or do you you know fly away from it? And that's what I think a lot of people are are encountering in their decision making processes. Are I either need to run away from it or attack it immediately? And those you know that freeze option gives you the opportunity to kind of 
maybe take that step back that you need to make the right decision on how to take action. Um, just uh, just a point. little point of clarity on that. This is below the mind, the thinking mind. Mm -hmm. um, so so what it is, is it's actually a reaction that happens um, a little bit quicker. And so when, when we get into fight, flight or freeze, um, fight is we usually get into some agitated state and maybe we have an outburst of some sort right we or you know or we get really angry at a situation and we're not able to problem solve it when we flee um we might just leave i might quit quit trying to you know get that technique right or i might disassociate i might check out and sometimes we use substances or we look at our phones or we you know there's there's different ways that we disconnect from reality because we're in this heightened state of arousal. Freeze is like, it's not a, it's not a state where we're problem solving or, or, or reflecting, it's a state of shutdown. So when we get into freeze, it's like, no, it's inaction. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's not desirable in terms of, of if we're looking to grow a capacity, that wouldn't be a desirable state to act from either. Mm -hmm. So, so really um, thinking about navigating the, the nervous system is the natural response to struggle is to go into one of these responses. So how do we shift our baseline reactions so that we don't default into struggle so quickly so that we can execute kind of our higher self? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that definitely creates a lot of clarity around that freeze element as opposed to just being you know sitting still and kind of still thinking I, I like how you mentioned it's before it's it's below the thinking mind so it's not like you're like i'm gonna fight it i'm gonna flight or i'm gonna freeze and you're not doing it consciously it's more of a subconscious and which is very interesting that the body can operate on that level um i think one of the curiosities from the folks listening um and we've gotten some feedback on this is better understanding what the nervous system actually does for us and then ways to tap into it to get you know benefit of kind of working on it um you know each and every day through yoga or you know being more conscious so you can leverage it for good not for you know the bad things that we oftentimes hear about when we talk about the nervous system yeah, so um, the main role of the nervous system um, is to transmit signals between the brain and the rest of the body, including our organs. Um, it, it controls our ability to move, to breathe, to see, to think, and, and really everything. Um, so we can think of it as our superhighway. And when we think of um, ways, when we think of nervous system in terms of conversations like we're having today, most people are talking about the stress response, right? So there's a part of our nervous system um, that is conscious movement. Like I pick up my cup and I take a sip of my drink, right? And that's, that's one part of the nervous system. But there's a part of our nervous system called the autonomic nervous system. And you can think automatic, autonomic. It takes care of the things that we don't have to do intentionally, like I mentioned, breathing, our heart rate, our glucose levels, our hormone releases, right? And that's also the part of the nervous system related to this stress response. And so the way that we can care for this part of our nervous system 
because we we mentioned struggle is inevitable. And so you can maybe equate struggle with like high states of stress. And I like to also kind of clarify there can be good stress, um, like something exciting happening in life, like welcoming a new child into your family or getting married um, or getting ready for travel. While these things are exciting, they also uptick our nervous system because there's excitement, there's things that are out of our ordinary schedule and attention that we need to focus on things. So there's things like that that can feel good that are stress. But really, when we're talking about nervous system, I think in the general culture and, and how to navigate it now is when we're talking about distress, which is like more of the daily hassles, the overpacked schedule, the having way too many things to do and not enough time to do it, the desire to participate in every aspect of life and, and, and participate well. Um, and so when we get to something like that, what we want to think about is, okay, um, there's a lot of stimulation coming in in contemporary life. And um, our nervous system's job is to create what's called homeostasis, which is a state of balance. The term for when there's too much load on the system is called allostatic load, meaning like there's so much stimulation, there's so much processing, there's so much energy that is needed within our human organism in order to manage it all. And what that does is it creates the stress response, which is a cascade of hormones that flow throughout the body that either put us into action, like I mentioned, and that could be fight, flight, or shut us down into freeze. And that's that's called the fight or flight response or freeze response. And the other side of it is the relaxation response. So it's the sympathetic nervous system is the arousal system. The parasympathetic nervous system is the rest and digest the resting system. And so much of our world is called sympathetic dominant, meaning we're not in that balance, that homeostatic balance between alertness and rest. And so the number one way to really get healthy and regulate the nervous system is quality sleep. So it, our, our lives are designed to have one third of our life already spent in that rest and digest part of our nervous system. Um, when people live in this more um, aroused, um, sympathetic dominant state, distressed dominant state, um, sleep is typically interrupted. <laughs> so mm -hmm. not only is it interrupted, but it's not prioritized. And so some people will work until late in the evening and, and you know, not follow a nice um, time period needed for adequate sleep. And the same is true for other things that bring us into balance. So um, movement and sometimes vigorous movement can really help us release the stress that's in the body. Sometimes more restful like unit movement like yoga or really like restorative yoga where we're lying down and we're alert but we're not distracted and we're just focusing on the relaxation response gentle stretching, um, 
breathing practices can both excite the nervous system. So something fast and vigorous. And, and, you know, some people are interested in like the Wim Hof breathing, which is something that really gets the nervous system going, the blood pumping that has the, also the result of like a release of stress. Um, and then there's breathing practices like box breathing or just lengthening our exhale that can like calm the nervous system. And again, prepare us for something like focus or rest. So um, the other things that also influence our nervous system are the foods that we eat, um, you know, the type of nutrition that we have, whether we're hydrating ourselves, um, whether we're taking pauses. So another thing that um, I encourage you all to look up is this concept of ultradian rhythms. And, you know, we're not really designed to be in high focus work performance states eight hours a day. Like the, this is just not in rhythm with our biology. And so taking intermittent breaks and really taking that break and like turning off the screen or not looking at the phone or when we eat, just eating and maybe conversating, but not multitasking. And so the the unitasking of life of just driving my car, but not driving my car and having a phone conversation and, you know, catching up on my messages, but really getting into like what I can do one thing at a time and, and doing that well. And with, you know, intention and focus can also be really um, centering and bringing that sense of balance to the nervous system. And so to me, it starts with awareness of like just stopping and tuning in and being willing to look at something like a nine to five schedule and thinking about, you know, yes, I want to make maybe my utmost contribution, but really knowing that I, I best operate and will give the highest quality of output when I'm completely, you know, balanced from within. And so you might be at work eight hours, but those six hours of it are like high, high productivity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so powerful for those listening in and, and for myself just to kind of question everything that we do and how it impacts the nervous system and for the for good or for bad. Um, what do you typically say to somebody that is curious where their nervous system stands. Like, is there any research on like one to 10, you know, your nervous system can be, you know, tested or you can do certain exercises on yourself to kind of realize where your nervous system is at in that process of getting into the rhythm. I hear circadian rhythm a lot. And obviously that's with sleep and waking and things. And um, you mentioned the altradium rhythm. Radian, yeah, ultra radian, yeah. Ultra radian, yeah. Oh, ultra radian, yeah. Okay. Um, well, like a lot of people are really into. I mean, I'm wearing, I'm wearing an aura ring. Um, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people are into devices that. So, yeah. so one measure of of the nervous system balance is called heart rate variability. Um, so sometimes we we could use the whoop band or the aura ring or um, some of our watches, um, you know, will give us that data in terms of like measuring, you know, heart rate and things like that, respiration, um, which is one way to do it. But honestly, I think we can just tune in. And so tuning in and, and really asking ourselves throughout the day, like, how do I feel right now? Do I feel overwhelmed? Do I feel tired? Is it hard for me to focus? Like, 
is there a challenge in your capacity to do whatever it is that you're trying to do? And then the other thing, and this is the first thing I usually start out with in my coaching when working with people, is I give them um, what I call a personal symptom index. And so we look at the different systems of the body, um, whether that's, and, and sleep is on there, but it might be our ability to sleep. Um, what, how is our digestion? Um, how is our, um, is there pain in the body? Is there anything going on in the joints? Am I having like chronic low back pain? Um, is there something related to um, my skin? Um, you know, so I, I look at the different systems of the body because what's happening internally, especially if it's been going on for a period of time, is going to show up as symptoms. And so those symptoms that might feel like light symptoms or chronic symptoms, eventually you're going to build in their intensity and, and could become a problem. And so I encourage people to not ignore the signals when they are, even when there are small signals that are coming through, like something seems a little off, um, it's a really good time to think about, okay, because stress doesn't necessarily cause disease and death, but it triggers the processes of everything else that eventually goes into a downward spiral. So managing distress or the negative forms of stress is really key for maintaining vitality and life. Mm -hmm. How do you help people kind of make a decision on where to start? Because I think we've normalized stress and some of these things where it's just like, that's just how my job's supposed to be, or that's just how my life is supposed to be. And getting out of that, you know, this is how it's always been. So this is, you know, what is supposed to, you know, I saw my parents stress out about, you know, X and I'm supposed to stress out about that because that's what I'm you know, used to. How do you help folks get started um, after they know that, that they have symptoms or they start to listen to those symptoms and say, this is not right, you know, try to trying to prioritize you know, what they start to do to shift that narrative or that symptom um, to a more positive result for themselves. Yeah, so that's that's the beauty of a, a coaching relationship because it is it's curated to the individual, right? So I have the pillars in front of me, right? So I'm, like I said, I'm looking at sleep, I'm looking at nutrition, I'm looking at movement, you know, and, and the resulting. So someone who might not get any movement and sits at a desk all day might come in with a lot of like physical symptoms like low back pain, right? Or something like that, right? But um, so, so that's one phase of it. But the other phase of it is um, usually what do I, so it usually falls in a few categories. Where do I feel, is, so is being stuck the main theme today is um, feeling imbalanced in my health. The main theme is too much. The main theme, mm -hmm. right? And so, if it's too much, it's like, okay, well, what are we going to eliminate? And so, it's it's always driven by. Um, I say this: the problem is the portal. So, in the initial coaching session we kind of look at the big picture, but then as we move forward each session, 
the I ask the clients to come in with, okay, so like what's on your mind today? Like what is getting the most real estate in your world right now? And let's look at that. And so depending on what that is, like I said, if it's if it's like there's so much, too much, not enough time, I, I have no space, then I'm going to go there and we're going to work together to see like what could be eliminated or what could be um, maybe rearranged on the schedule. So it doesn't all have to be done now, but maybe it could be deferred to the future or I work with a lot of people who have, who, you know, run businesses, what could be delegated? Like what, what is it that you're doing that you actually have a team of people that might be their job description versus yours. And then underneath that of the too much, there's probably a pattern. And so like, why do I do too much? Mm -hmm. Like what's underneath that? And like with burnout, then this was my own story. Um, I have this tendency to overdo, right? And then underneath that, why do I think I need to overdo? And the other pattern that all of us have is when things feel different than my regular schedule, when, when I feel that high sense of distress, why is my self-care the first to go? Why do I stop caring for myself and like pour everything into everything else when I know the whole analogy of, you know, put your own oxygen mask on mm -hmm. first? Like we all know that, mm -hmm. but we don't do that. And even as a parent or again, or somebody who's responsible for an organization of a lot of people, whatever way that we because we all have responsibility in the world to other people and in, in whatever realm of life we're in, um, really getting back to when I feel imbalance, I better offer the way I show up in the world to everybody, my children, my colleagues, my community, my spouse, you know, mm -hmm. whoever it is in that circle of influence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's incredible that <clears throat> there is, you know, a balance people can strike and, and you look for those patterns. And I think that's so critical because sometimes um, one of my previous guests, uh, Anthony Trucks, mentioned you can't see the label inside the jar. And to have that external perspective to say, here's a pattern that you may not be telling me, but I know that it starts with, you know, too much or, you know, too little time. Um, how do you help people to navigate balancing between serving others and then that self-care aspect? Because I think it's it's so hard for people to make that determination. And oftentimes when other people need us, you know, we, like you said, get away from our self-care aspects, which, you know, at the other end of that situation, you know, our nervous system is probably shocked because you're not in your normal rhythm. You're not doing what you normally do because you put it all on hold to go you know, serve those other folks. That's a pattern. Um, that, that's one of the patterns. So the, the pattern is, and, and, and maybe the pattern comes from like, I feel deepest connection by doing for others, right? So there's a, there's a genuinely um, beautiful intention <laughs> behind the, all the serving others. Right. Mm -hmm. But again, like, if we step back from that, like, well, what would it take to nourish me? And, and 
is it uncomfortable for me to receive? And receiving is like, you know, taking a moment to have like a glass of water, <laughs> you know, like it doesn't have to be this, this highly vulnerable act. I mean, it might be, it might be like letting someone cook you dinner and, you know, do something really for you, but it can be, is like what you're willing to receive from yourself. And that might just be um, something that is a coping style from when we're young that is conditioned. And um, at the time, it was like a very elegant solution to being young and a child and not understanding the world. But it created a habit that as we move into adulthood, it's, it's not working as well. And we ultimately, when these things, when the patterns come up, um, I've been doing this a long time. And honestly, when the question is out there of like, well, what's under this repetitive behavior of, let's say, like poor time management and overpacking my schedule and taking on too many things. What's underneath that and what is the why? Most people tap into that, like quiet you were talking about before and get very introspective. And um, once they realize like, oh, like now I see that that I do that a lot and it makes me feel drained, right? And they connect it to like the feeling. Then we can bring a little bit more awareness to it. And then it's it's easier to shift. And like I said, the belief leads to the action, which leads to the reality. It's about tapping into like, is there a core belief or habit that I get myself into? And then when I just have to see it, I don't even have to overly solve it. I just have to be like, oh, that's what that is. Then I can be more mindful of the actions that I take, you know, to get out of that. Mm -hmm. So it's gentle. Um, and, you know, really in my way, it, it relates back to the aim of even the, the Eastern philosophy is like, it's like liberating. Mm -hmm. It's like freeing yourself of something that, you thought should be or always is and like this is just how it has to be and they're like oh gosh wow it doesn't doesn't have to be that way mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah it really, it really is liberating and, and freeing um one of the biggest changes i've recently made which has been you know huge for my nervous system and i can feel the difference is it's not always my duty to solve things even if it's in my business or in my personal life and one of the questions I ask myself is, is this my responsibility to solve, you know, right now? And before that point of realizing I needed to ask myself that question, I was trying to solve everything around me, whether that was, you know, somebody's going through a hard time or, you know, a client's having an issue or, you know, the building needs help by people. And, you know, you're, you're pulling yourself around and there's a lot of impact on your nervous system from that aspect of not being conscious, just being, I'm going to solve everything around me. And it, it really wears you down to a point of probably, you know, the definition of burnout, um, which I definitely feel is in the nervous system um, completely. So. I love that question. I mean, and, and that is really what it's about is like finding your guiding question. And then you just check in with that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, questioning, you know, it's questioning and changing a belief, like you mentioned, belief, action, and then reality. 
I didn't even know I had that belief. It was just what I thought was right. And uh, nobody ever questioned it until that point in time. And it's like, is this really your responsibility to solve? And it made me, you know, take a step back and say, you know, these five things I'm trying to solve right now, none of them are my responsibility to solve. And uh, there's, there's definitely something liberating about that. And even noticing, like, you, like, smiled when, you know, like, you were like, oh, I like that feedback that it's not my responsibility. Yeah. Like, it feels good. Yeah, right? yeah, it does. Do you think that's a release in the of the nervous system? I, you know, I'm trying to contextualize it in my mind because I can feel it. But one of the things I've been interested in, especially lately, is trying to help other people feel what I what I feel. And sometimes it's hard to describe, you know, that the nervous system holds on to things, things get released and chemicals get released, good and bad. Um, how do you think about how the nervous system holds on to things and, you know, how it releases things? How do you kind of think about that from a from a science standpoint? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to speak to it just um in layman's terms because it it it's hard to when you make it too nerdy it, it's hard to really take it in but basically um as life happens you know things are coming in through the five senses right and we have and and if you pay attention to it you know maybe me talking about this will inspire people to start paying attention but all day long there's these little like muscular like Oh, that email. And like, I tense up my muscles and I squinch up my face and my heart rate upticks for a few moments. And then, you know, but, but that little tension pattern, like creates a little network in the body. Right. And there's even research, um, where these mole it's called molecules of emotion by Candace Pert. Um, she actually wanted, uh, one of the big, I think she won a Nobel award for it. I forget which award, but the idea is that, um, our emotions, actually become these little neuropeptide molecules that lodge into different areas of the body and um, create not only postural habits and tension patterns, but can create like imbalance in different systems of the body. And that's why we now understand like you can have gut health issues when you're carrying a lot of stress, you know, and things like that. So that's kind of simplifying something incredibly complex. But um, what I love your question, because there's, there's, like a four phase cycle to understanding stress. And so the first is struggle. Like, so we experience the stressor. And then if we want to get, if we want to navigate stress, well, the first is the struggle. The second phase is release. And so release is something that moves something. So sometimes it's physical movement. So, you know, you're an athlete, you know, like, when you work out after you've had a long work day, right? You kind of get that, whew, like that feeling of like, oh, I feel so much better. I've like moved physically. It could be vigorous, doesn't have to be vigorous. It could be a walk, right? So release is something that activates the nervous system enough to um, take your mind off of the thing that you're struggling on let you kind of almost get into like what we call like default mode thinking. So like, you know, how you can be like lifting weights and kind of be mind wandering a little bit, right? So it's simple enough activity that you can still engage with it. But at the same time, your brain can be wandering a little bit more. So release could be physical. It could be, it could be emotional. It could be a good cry, a good laugh. Um, it could be yelling. <laughs> um, it could be, um, breath because breath is the quickest nervous system relief 
So it could be, like I said, a more vigorous breath. It could be a slower breath, depending on what you're feeling. Um, again, always tuning in and fine tuning to what you need. Um, there's a little bit that's actually some good research out there that getting in the shower and like the water hitting your body and you know how you kind of like are going through a shower, but then you're like also kind of mind wandering, that can be a release. Um, driving down a road that doesn't have traffic that you know where you're going, where you can, again, just kind of like take in the landscape and kind of mind wander a little bit, that too can be a release. And what's happening is, is that you're coming off of the struggle enough so that the areas of the brain that are working are not engaged with the struggle. They're just engaged with like wandering. And there is something moving in the body. And in the case of like the um, driving and walking, there's this thing called optic flow, which our eyes start to go back and forth as we're scanning an environment that we're moving through. And that actually also induces a release, like a lowering of nervous system arousal. So we go struggle into release, releases phase two. Then we could, well, the balloons, then we could go into um, some focus if we wanted to, like then we could, we might be able to get into that broaden and build because we're not coming from an agitated state of the nervous system. We've released some of the stress so then we can, you know, maybe use some of that energy to problem solve. But then the fourth phase, and again, it's built into our lives already, is sleep, is recovery. And so the two areas that I see that most humans could really improve and pay more attention to is stress release and stress recovery. Now, recovery is different than release. Recovery is rest. It's stocking back in everything that's been put out. And so like if we talk about the body brain, um, kind of the, the energy account, right, that we're looking at, you know, to get into that state of balance I was talking about before is like our lives are a lot of output. And so we have to have things that stock that account back up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like the accounting uh analogy i think that it, it resonates with people on the you know assets lab like the pluses and minuses the you know that's what equals you know that for people you know the equity they have in their you know, happiness success you know whatever word you want to put it put towards it um but having equations like this like four aspects that the nervous system goes through makes it so contextual where people can start to put it into practice in their own life as opposed to just saying, oh, that's a scientific, you know, area of my body that I, you know, I can't impact. And I think you definitely can when you have the right information, which you know, you, you provided for us today. So it's been incredible. Um, how can folks get in contact with you, Diane, to whether just a conversation to engage you in coaching um, or even participate in one of your yoga classes? Yeah, so I think my website is probably the best place to find all things that are going on and, and how to directly reach me. And that's um, my name, dianemalaspina.com. Um, and I love socials. So if you want to follow me, um, Instagram is probably the one I'm more more active on. And that's um, dr.dianemalaspina. Um, and um yeah, those are those are the direct access points for me. Perfect. 
Yeah, I definitely encourage everybody to reach out to Diane, um, whether you're local or not. Uh, I think that's one of the uniquenesses of, of the connected world that we live in. Um, this conversation is really at the core of what this show is all about. It's helping people better connect to the world or with the world around them. Um, and you know, you mentioned early on in the show that the nervous system is the super highway that allows you to connect to you know that outside world in a effective way. Um, that's you know win-win for those around you as well as yourself. And I think that's what we're all trying to find as we navigate our lives. Um, Diane, it's definitely been a pleasure to have you on the show and, and looking forward to having you on in the future and continuing the conversation. Um, the way we like to wrap up the show is, you know, with all the great experience you have, all the research you've done, all the, all the people that you've taught um, these strategies to, you know, what does connection mean to you today in your daily life or um, as a business owner? Yeah, thank you. Um, so much for having me too. It's been a really great conversation. Gosh, connection, you know, to me is is really about um, tuning in, like we've talked about, um, and really getting clear on what's meaningful for you. And then, you know, getting out into the world and being with the people and in the places and engaging with the activities and the work that make you feel meaningful and connected um and really also looking at like what makes you feel disconnected you know and and again i i don't like to put things in categories of like good or bad they just are and so we do have this wonderful vehicle for being connected to the entire world in so many different ways but there's a lot of times that that makes us feel disconnected or overwhelmed or it saps our energy and so I think being connected is being able to tune into that for yourself individually, and then being willing to move from that and being intentional about how you spend your time, who you spend your time with, and the things that you engage your mind with. I love that. That's very, uh, very insightful way to look at connection. And, um, you know, I think a lot of us we get overstimulated and we tune off as opposed to tuning in and really feeling our way through situations to, you know, make sure we're not just saying that's how it should be, you know, good, bad, or ugly. Um, and everybody wants to label things good and bad, um, which I think stress us out because you have to make a decision between is this bad or is this good? And um, one of our previous guests, he called it a thick description because it's, it requires a deeper, analysis to not put a label to it to actually you know come up with a solution without labeling it good or bad and, and using that as the decision making criteria so um, i love that you mentioned that as a part of connection because i think that allows people to better connect with the world around them and that's what we all want at the end of the day and we have to make decisions on that um, i think by the second as we navigate this world so um, diane thank you so much for your time and looking forward to continuing the conversation Thank you.